Thank you for that kind introduction, and let me thank the Lobels for making this all possible. I am quite honored by uh, being asked to give this award, uh, these lectures. Now, what I've done, and this is in discussions with uh, Dr. Lobel and I, is divide up the subject into two lectures, one's tonight and one's tomorrow. And this lecture is largely going to lay the groundwork, as it were, for the philosophical problems. I'm going to give you lots and lots of data, uh, much of it from my own research, and a fair amount of it is psychiatric, so I will try to give you the necessary background, since I know that this is going to be a mixed audience. Some of you presumably work in the areas of mental health, but some do not. There's also going to be lots and lots of data, and my advice to you is don't sweat the details. That is that there are going to be several underlying points that I was to make, wish to make that I will repeat a fair number of times, giving you a variety of examples. So if there's some particular part of the slide you don't understand, save that. We're going to have quite a long time for discussion afterwards. But let's overall get going. So um, in my talk number two, what you will see is that I'm going to circle back and try to provide my own view about a conceptual and philosophical framework within which to understand the findings that I will present today. But it will help to have two central concepts in mind that you have as we move forward. That is, first, there are lots of levels, and that's a word I will use a lot. We can discuss what it means. There are many discussions about it, but it's a very convenient word despite its lack of clarity, at which we have documented risk factors for psychiatric illness. I'm going to take that as a given. And second, that these causal effects operate across levels, many of them add together. And what that means conceptually is that if I'm looking at a risk factor at a particular level, be it genetic or environmental, I do not need to worry about whether the uh, particular risk factors at other levels are going to modify what I'm doing. It's going to be I can account on it. It's going to have a certain amount of risk, regardless of what is occurring to the individual at other levels. And there, that happens for many of the, many of the uh, conditions. There are lots of additive risk factors we have here. I'm, those are going to be sort of offstage right. We should know they exist. I'm not going to be focusing on that here. I'm going to focus on the situations where they don't add. And what that means in a technical and statistical sense is where the effect of one risk factor at one level is conditional on what is going on at other levels. I think this occurs across a wide variety of areas. I'm only going to sample across them. But that has substantial impacts for our approaches towards ideologic research. William Wimsatt, one of the many philosophers of biology I've read, he talks about kinds of organization. And the very simplest kind is a sand pile, where every single grain of sand more or less does the same thing. That's the additive model. I don't have to worry. There's no interactions going on. If you've got X amount of extra genetic risk or X amount of environmental risk, it's just going to be a grain of sand as I build this pile of ideology. Very simple, no complexity. I'm going to give you the exceptions to that. To elucidate the levels we will largely be looking at, which are well documented, are going to be main effects for psychiatric disorders. I'm mostly going to be talking about things like molecular genetic variants, even more so latent genetic risks that are assessed through twin and adoption studies, latent environmental risk factors, which we also estimate because of similarities between various classes of relatives, a lot between identical and fraternal twins. And I will be talking about documented environmental risk factors, which we measure some from public registries, some by interviewing people, and I'll be talking about at least four levels. Risk factors that operate on individual people, stressful life event. Those that operate on the family, so one example might be parenting practices or parental social class. 
Those that operate on the community, an example might be uh, social deprivation, and those that operate at a cultural level, the one specific example I will be looking at is attitudes towards smoking and especially smoking in women. So basically five sections of the talk. First, I'm going to review genotype environment interactions, examples and related findings. Probably that's the largest section. Second, I'm going to look at gene environment covariation, and I'll explain what that means. Third, I'm going to look at the critical question of development. That is, so often we consider our models to be dynamically static, and particularly we think that genes and environment act in static deterministic ways. I will show you evidence that that is widely fallacious, and in fact, I'll give you a couple of examples about why that obviously has to be true. Fourth, I'm going to step back and try to present, because this is an area that I've worked in some, trying to develop more comprehensive models that are empirically based. Psychiatrists are wonderful at cocktail conversation and drawing these grand schemes in the air. We've got genes, environment, this, and they'll make a great case. And you ask them, well, where's the data? Well, I'm working on it, or you know what I mean. But this is real data. Complex models fit to real data, and that means 10 years before that, you've got to design the studies, collect the sample size to actually give you the capacity. So you can't do that on the spur of the moment. But I think that's pretty important, particularly because we get this idea of pathways and mediational variables, particularly for me of interest, is how do you get from something like genetic risk to depression, how complex that route actually is. And then fifth, completely switching from my very typical data-oriented story of approach, my, my approach to top-down causality is to tell you two stories. And that's all I'm going to do. So we'll end on that now. OK, gene-environment interactions. Whole set of issues, statisticians talk about the nature of interactions, epidemiologists write whole journals, uh, articles about what is the nature of interactions. I'm not going to talk about the nature of the scales, which is interactions has the statistical characteristics. And I'm simply going to tell you there is a risk difference and risk ratio approaches out there. I'm an advocate of risk difference approaches, which means that I care about additivity on a single scale. I want to know whether more cases are being produced. And if you're a great fan of logistic regression, that's a whole other set of arguments. If any of you want to get into that during the discussion section, we can. But that's where I'm coming from. I largely want to discriminate, and I'll just show you diagrams in a minute, between additive models and various kinds of interactions. And let me just again get very, very simple. So this is an additive model in which I have increasing adversity from some theoretical environment on this axis. And we see a bunch of slides like this. And here, these are rows of individuals from a low genetic risk to very high genetic risk. The important feature of an additive model is that the incremental change as I go from a really benign to a moderately benign to a moderate to a bad to a really bad environment is the same across genotype. The slopes are equal. That's an additive model, which means that I can basically take all the genetic risk and the environmental risk and add them together, and that's what I get. Very differently is this model, which you'll be seeing a number about. Here, the slope differs. Those that have low-risk genotypes differ in two ways. One is that they have lower average risk, but this slope is much shallower than this slope. So if I've got a good genotype, not only do I have lower average risk, but I am more resilient. I have less gain of risk as I go from a bad, from a good to a, a, a malignant environment. Two ways, and I'll show you data in that form. Now these are fancier interactions. I'm not going to spend much time about that. This is the full classic crossover interaction, which I think is actually very, very rare in nature. Okay, so I'm going to talk kind of a bedrock issue, which is the interaction between stressful life events an individual level of environmental adversity and genetic risk and depression. 
And uh, these will both come from this major twin study, if any of you ever wish to. This is a full length treatment of this large interview-based cohort, total of a little over 25,000 personal interviews from a Virginia population base. So just to take my word that this was methodologically very carefully done, DNA-based psychosities, blind personal interviews, structured assessments, etc. But I'm going to just leap to the chaser. So this is a old result, one of the first, because this was an issue that fascinated me during my clinical residency. If you asked me, as a psychiatrist, I would have strongly voted for this model. That is that I think that one of the most prominent things you experience, both as a general human being, but also as a clinician, is the remarkable variation in the resilience of people to adversity. And this would be a statistical test, and believe it or not, that really hadn't been done before in this kind of model. So what did I do here? This is really pretty simple-minded. I started with, this is a twin population, these are all females, and we had done a very careful job, interview-based, coded, et cetera, measuring stressful life events over a one-year window. We empirically looked at the really bad life events, which individually increased risk for depression by an order of magnitude, and this was things like uh, close relative, uh, getting a, a potentially fatal illness, like mom gets breast cancer, or dad has a heart attack, having a major romantic breakup, you yourself having breast cancer or something fatal, learning something really terrible, like that your child was arrested for cocaine abuse, something you didn't know about. These are these life-threatening situations where life kind of takes you by the collar and sort of shakes you to your roots kind of feeling. And they were pretty rare, so we had to wait some time before enough such events accumulated, and we took what is effectively the crudest possible measure of genetic risk, this is identical twins whose co-twin had a depression. So this person shares all their genes with someone with depression. This is an identical twin whose co-twin never had depression, so has a low risk. And this is a dizygotic twin whose co-twin didn't have risk. It doesn't convey as much because we only share half our genes with dizygotic twins, and this is high. And what we showed was that what I've described since then is this classic fan-shaped interaction, which means that with this being the odds ratio of risk of major depressive onset, there's a small difference between uh, the risk for major depression in those at basal conditions. And what happens when they all experience bad adversity is you splay out the difference. So the differences between become much greater between those who are at the lowest genetic vulnerability and those who are at the highest. That is a genotype environment interaction. Okay. Now, a few years later, I improved on that in two ways. One is that I use a quantitative measure because for reasons I'm not going to explain here, the personality trait of neuroticism is actually genetically a pretty good index, not perfect, of the vulnerability to major depression. And since then, we went back and used John um, Wing's long, not John, John Brown's uh, long-term contextual threat rating for, for uh, life events. So these are much more finely graded. And it's not just a zero one, with these being a much stronger diversity. And again, what you see, although slightly more detailed, is this perfect example. These are the individuals at very high genetic risk. And look at how steep, especially this leap, as you go from this moderate to really severe events, they really go very, very high. Uh, hazard ratios over 35%. And you've got a very good genotype under the most horrific potential situations, you get a risk of about 8%. So a dramatic interaction. <coughs> now, how unique is that kind of interactive process? Does it occur in other domains? So I went to a very different kind of question. This is now going from a twin sample to an adoption sample. So think of the adoptee as an individual who is, is exposed to a certain set of environmental experiences from their adoptive families. 
and mostly uncorrelated. We know the exact nature of the correlation. It's very low in Sweden. And genetic risk that they get from their biological parents, their mother and father. And so here I was asking a question about whether the risk for drug abuse genetically versus the quality of rearing environment you get from the adoptive family, do those interact with one another? And these are the details of it. I'm not free for uh, time. I'm going to go into those. Uh, this is the paper in JAMA, or I guess it was still then called Archives of General Psychiatry, just published a couple of years ago. And this is the key overall result. So if this is starting to look like similar graphs, it's not your imagination. But this is as different a kind of model as could be. So what we now have done is by measuring many features of the adoptive environment, including uh, death or divorce of the adoptive parent, uh, drug abuse, alcohol, criminal behavior in the parent, uh, medical problems in the parent, uh, and also uh, drug abuse and others in the adoptive siblings. So we were able to do a multivariate assessment of the quality of the environmental experience. It was a quite strong predictor. So that's what's going on. We just looked at deciles across. And here we did similarly with the biological risk factors. So those are individuals where both parents would have had multiple externalizing disorders, drug abuse, alcohol, criminality. So they began life with the highest overall genetic load. So what we saw is that those had very low genetic risk the difference in risk for drug abuse as they went from the best possible adoptive environment to the worst possible was just a little over a percent. They were relatively resilient as giving, rearing those people in a bad environment had a small incremental effect. Look at the individuals at the highest level, they went well over 5%. So almost five times the increased rate uh, as you go from a relatively benign environment to a diverse environment. So again, quite robust statistical item sample sizes here was about a little over 25,000 adoptees, so the, this, this significance was very robust. Again, showing non-additive relationships across levels, genetic risk versus a family-rearing environmental characteristic. Okay, now a very different kind of model. This time I'm staying in the externalizing disorders. Uh, we have, for lots of reasons, interest in what drinking patterns are like in early adolescence. So most, the average onset of drinking in Virginia males is about 12 or 13, sometimes 11. Uh, it's when they first start experimenting. Um, and we have reasons to think that that is both a time where, where influences are very flexible, but also as patterns begin to set in, that those are important for later development. That is, you're establishing habits of either what would be a more healthy recreational pattern of drinking versus a more binging and, and abusive kind of pattern that will manifest in problems in mid and late adolescence. So what we did, and this is using a life history measure, uh, this is retrospective reports from adult twins, we had calendars, there's a whole technology of how you do a better job of collecting accurate information, but this is not prospective, which for many reasons we were not able to do. And we looked at a variety of potential environments that we might think should moderate genetic risks. The most important, I mean, obvious one would be alcohol availability. So if you had a model in which you found that there was not much difference between those who could easily or not get access to alcohol, the potential is that you may have had difficulties. And I'm just picking a few of these, again, to illustrate. In this case, it's particularly nice because you will see some of the differences in the patterns of interactions that you see for these. So, so this is the pattern of all these various slides that we're going to go see for. So this is now genetic risk for alcohol disorder or generalized externalizing on the x-axis. What we've done is standardized because the distribution of drinks is very nasty and positively skewed, so really don't worry about that. And then all we've done is fit slopes. Again, for those, so the slope is a function of the environmental variable, and all we've done is fit the mean 
and then only one standard deviation up or down. Many people choose two standard deviations because it makes it prettier, but actually your statistical stability when you're out there, you know, 97th percentile and 10.5 is less strong. So this is quite a modest approach. So what do you see? This is quite relieving. Uh, it's not very surprising. That is that kids who had high genetic risk, who had much less accessibility to alcohol, did drank a lot less. And the slope of those was lower because they couldn't get access. So that's sort of self-evident. And these obviously had a much steeper slope as they went from, so remember, this, these are the group at really low genetic risk. These are very high and these are intermediate. Now this one was way interesting to me. So I've done a bunch of work, and you'll see a little bit of this about the concept of pure deviance. If you look in to the d developmental literature, the criminal developmental psychology literature, the criminology literature, that if you had to ask someone who's, let's say, hadn't smoked a cigarette or hadn't committed a crime when they're 15 or 16, the most powerful predictors are, you get them to enumerate their close friends, then you find out the level of deviance of their friends. And deviance would include skipping school, cheating on tests, getting into fights, using drugs, using weapons in fights, selling drugs, increasing accelerate. And that is a very potent prospect of risk factor. So for me, these results were fascinating in that what it showed is that if you have low peer deviance when you're 12 to 14, it really doesn't matter what your peer group is, I mean, excuse me, what your genetic risk is. That is that you will not manifest your genetic risk. The, the way, I, the joke I make out of this is the only friends you have are choir boys. Right? And uh, you know, what you like to do is go to church and pray, and the idea of ever possibly taking a drink, you're not gonna get any encouragement. If they found you with alcohol in your breath, they'd all make fun of you and disparage you. If you're in that environment, your genes don't do anything. One could use a vulgarity there, but they just don't change. They are effectively silenced. And you will see, I'm gonna come back to this theme at the very end about top-down influences. On the other hand, look at this dramatic sense, the differences between a low genetic risk and a high genetic risk when you're hanging around in an environment that likes to drink, encourage you to drink. If you're an adolescent boy, of course, that's how you show you're a real man. All those encouragements, it's a big effect. Okay, so this is, for me, a very good example. We're going from genes to social, so we're skipping across several levels. And look at how dynamic these effects are. Now, this is a, a different kind of interaction. This is the lack of pro-social activity. So at least in the U.S., it's very typical that parents of kids who are a little rowdy, have a touch of ADHD, may have a little bit of conduct when they're eight or nine, pediatricians will face things like, well, they need a lot of adult supervision time, right? So put them in Boy Scouts, put them in 4-H club, make sure they're not hanging around with other kids, you know, keep them busy getting them in ice skating, get them in football, any sorts of things, and that'll be very helpful. So what this shows is that at the low end of the genetic risk, you don't really have to be driving your kid around. If your goal, you, you may want to put them in 4-H clubs for lots of other reasons, but if the goal is to reduce their risk of doing nasty things like drinking too much, the low genetic risk kids, you can leave at home. Doesn't matter. On the other hand, the high risk kids, you really get some substantial protective effect. So at this end, having them in lots of sponsored pro-social activities matters. So it's again, it's a good example of the richness. These aren't, the curves don't all look the same. It's not all that's just flat line in this case. So. Now, I am a deep believer in, first, the innate fallibility of any of this kind of non-experimental data. So I hang with people who do real genetics. You know, they take rodents, and they take Drosophila, and they take C. elegans, and they manipulate the genes, and they manipulate the environment. They, they are completely gods in this. They have control. And here I am trying to take advantage of natural experiments, all kinds of potential biases, 
People don't, human beings don't always tell them the truth when you ask them on questions. You know, why should you believe what you get? There is no single definitive human study of these kinds of questions, and I think a skeptical attitude is perfectly appropriate. What is the best way to respond to that? Try to figure out a way to ask the question in as different a way as possible and see if you get the same results. Okay? That's the best things we can do. So this is an example where I sort of succeeded at that. So through a uh, husband and wife team, Jan and Christina Sundqvist, I've been able to get access to basically the, the country of Sweden as a human laboratory. And I have tried to figure out how to define something that might approximate the idea of pure deviance. And very simply, there are these little units, they're called SAM, Statistical Area Market Surveys, that have got about 1,000 people in them. There's 7,000 of them overall in Sweden. And we know enough to grab an individual person and then say, I'm going to take all the people living in the small neighborhood who are within five years of your age, and I'm going to project them forward to see their risk for drug abuse over the next 20 years, and back define the nature of the future deviancy of the people you're residing with. And I can do that for the whole country. Okay? So that's not anything like the pure deviance measures we had before. You could argue as pluses or minuses, but it's underlying the same construct. And then we're able to assess genetic risk because we know the potential risk of drug abuse in your mother, your father, your siblings, your half-siblings, your, um, and all the way out to your first cousins. So we can define a risk in, in a relatively complete way. And this is a sample size of uh, 1.8 million people, something like that. And these are the results. Now, they're not quite as dramatic, but the same point is, this is the level of drug abuse in peers. So this is effectively a measure of your peer deviance. This is a measure of your genetic risk, and what you see, sure enough, is that under those at very low genetic risk, the gain in risk, the, the number of future onsets is actually where this is measured per 10,000 person years, and that's for statistical reasons. The slope is substantially lower in those at low genetic risk. So if you're going to be raised in a high pure deviance environment, the spread of genes is much greater than if you're measured in a low pure deviance environment. So, I would say that that's reasonably successful in as different a way as possible as suggesting with respect to drug abuse as an end phenotype, you cannot assume that your genetic risk will act on you independent not only of potential family context, but of the social context within which you grow up. Okay. All right, so now I want to turn to a quite uh, different question. And this is, again, talking about levels, this is about culture. So we've looked now at interactions between genetic risks and individual family-based events like stressful life events in community. Here I want to look at historical or cultural trends. And here the main output outcome is going to be tobacco consumption and year of birth in Swedish twins. This was done with Nancy Pedersen on her famous SATSA sample. And actually what I'm going to show you is a genetic risk by year of birth by gender interaction. I'm not a fan of these, but this is the basic curve and I will try to explain to you. So, these are three historical cohorts in Sweden. This is a large sample of Swedish twins. And let's start up here. This curve represents the tobacco use among Swedish males across the first approximately two-thirds, or a little over half of the 20th century. And it's pretty flat. Slightly goes up a little bit. More or less, about 65 to 70% of Swedish males have regularly used tobacco across the 20th century. Now, let's contrast that with what's going on in the uh, prevalence in females. So what you see in females is a quite low rate, well under so about 16% in this early period, and it increases about fivefold. 
So I don't know how many of you both remember, or those of us from America know this, this is the Virginia Slims, you've come a long way, baby, model. Well, this is, of course, what they were, they were trying to encourage. This was how to tie feminism into the most malignant possible, that show that you're a real woman and go smoke a cigarette, right? You can tell those men to stuff it. Uh, quite malignant, but that's another story. But you see exactly the same trend. So, so we are now in a situation where this exposure, remember, we're looking at genetic influences on tobacco use, we have this extraordinary natural experiment where for males, we basically have a constant level of exposure and presumably a very low stigma ratio. And we know for a variety of sociological studies that much of what was going on here was intense social stigma against women smoking during this time period. That's interesting. That's sociology. Let's talk about the genetics. So here's the heritability of smoking behavior among males across the 20th century. And it's been, I mean, if you add standard error bars, it's, it's going nowhere. It's about 50% across the time. What's happening in the female? This is really where the whole story is. For all intents and purposes, although there is a reasonable standard error bar on this, we found no evidence that genes were doing anything for those women born in the early part of the century. While if you look over time, it goes up, and then by those born, mostly coming of age, well after the Second World War, when, when uh, stigma dropped dramatically, the heritability of smoking in females was indistinguishable in that for males. What's going on? Well, here's the theory. There's a variety of studies that show that in constrained environments, rural areas, first-generation immigrants, rural parts of Sweden versus Helsinki, that the heritability of externalizing behavior is lower because you have social controls. And what happens is as social controls are removed from adolescence, their genotype does more. That's just what we saw in those earlier slides, right? The low pure deviance, you haven't got much of an opportunity. What happens when the community, if you've got a genetic vulnerability for externalizing, high pure deviance will actualize that potential. But the same kind of process is going on here. That is the social constraints against women smoking really suppress that genetic expression. And what happens when women are smoking like men? Their genes are doing the same thing like men. That's the process. All right, so all of our analyses so far have been cross-level with genetic factors. Now I want to look very briefly at the interaction between different classes of environmental risk factors. So we assume should environmental factors always be added together or would we expect to see some important non-additive effects? I'm only going to look at one example. And this is the uh, relationship between early severe event childhood sexual abuse, which is something we've looked at a great deal. We've measured it very carefully. We've looked at co-twin reports. We've done statistical modeling. We can go into that in detail. And an acute proximal stressful event. And this is the, the paper that reports this. So this curve, you should be getting pretty tired of looking at curves like this because they kind of look the same. But this has got nothing to do with genes in the whole study. This is now the level of that stressful life event adversity from these four being those really terrible life-shattering events. You know, one or two is getting in a car wreck that costs you $500. Uh, number three might be your factory may be closing down, you could lose your job, it's not so life-threatening. These are individuals with no history of childhood sexual, all females. These are individuals um, who have been flashed at or propositioned or potentially had their breasts fondled, but nothing more severe. And this is a group that has had repeated, attempted, or completed sexual intercourse without their, without their consent and their active dislike. Uh, so these are different measures of severity. And if you look just at the main effects, this kind of sexual abuse, this is about 8% um, of our population, and this is about 5%. So our total rate of sexual abuse, very similar to other US and, and uh, Western European hospitalization samples, about 15%. 
So what you see, in fact, and this is what clinicians will repeatedly see, is that those who have been traumatized in a relatively severe fashion early in life are considerably more sensitive to the effects of proximal stress. They have uh, for a variety of reasons. So this is, in effect, acting like what a genetic risk does. It sets an average vulnerability, but also being abused makes you more vulnerable to other adversities. All right, so now that's the first major part of the, of the talk, and I'm now going to switch to an area that I think is equally important, doesn't get quite all the press, and this is genotype environment correlation. So um, what does this mean? It means in an abstract statistical sense, our exposure to genetic risks, the ones we get from our mommy and daddy's DNA, and the environmental risk are not uncorrelated in the population. They have almost always a positive correlation. And I will try to show you why that may be occurring. Um, one WAG has said that the, the issue with our brains, which of course are largely wired by our genes in some experiences, our brains have feet. Right? They go out in the world and they do things. Uh, we also know that there are significant heritable components for many of the kinds of environments, in scare quotes, that epidemiologists have been covering for years. Stressful life events, social support, marital equality, or even deviance of peer groups. Um, it was very interesting when I first started publishing in this area in the uh, mid-1990s, and I got some reviews back from prestigious journals who said, this is ridiculous, it's the worst of old-fashioned deterministic uh, genetics, how could life events be heritable, that makes no sense. And I had just finished, you know, Richard Dawkins, before he got off into his kind of anti-religious campaign, wrote a wonderful book that I highly recommend, The Extended Phenotype where he makes the argument, by the way, evolutionary biologists get this completely, about extended phenotypes of other organisms. Let me just show you two of them to make it clear. So uh, this is an extended impact of the beaver genotype. Right? Beavers go out into the world and they make dams. And those dams have all kinds of impact on forest biology. So that is an outside the skin pathway for what beavers do to the world around them. Right? And this is an impact of termite genotypes. Termites really go out and change things in the world. They change their environment. Is it a surprising idea that humans, you know, look at all these clothes we're wearing and these buildings we make and our social network and our relationship. In fact, I think common sense would indicate that, of course, we do things like beavers and termites of doing important things in creating our world. And because we're genetically different, we create somewhat different worlds. That's really the point. So what is that sort of telling us in the long run? What this raises is the concept, the terminology that I've used, is inside the skin and outside the skin pathways. So the inside the skin is the standard reductionist neurobiological model. You know, let me take, you know, I've got abnormalities of my serotonin receptors, and that impacts on the prefrontal amygdala connection, that imp impacts on reaction to adversity, et cetera, et cetera. So I've got DNA going to RNA protein susceptibility, and then the environment impacts on the outside in a traditional model, and I'm either at higher or low risk. The outside the skin model, of course, is that my brain does things in behavior, and by God, when I behave, it impacts on my environment. The arrow doesn't necessarily always go in susceptibility from environment inside, but also goes from behavior outside, so that we as psychiatric geneticists really have to worry about both these pathways. The traditional reductionist model, which is surely important, which is this um, inside, but also, and I will show you evidence, that my brain goes out, produces behavior, does things in the environment, that then feedbacks on my susceptibility. 
So it is this outside the skin pathway which needs to be actively considered that standard reductionist neuroscience models very rarely consider. This is a review paper I wrote with a good graduate student in 2006 where we looked at 55 individual papers at just the heritability of these so-called environmental risk factors. You see the list there, and the average weighted heritability was 27%. It's not a lot, it's modest. It's lower than your cholesterol. Uh, it's about like phobias, which are among the least heritable of disorders, but it's appreciable. So that individuals don't experience stressful life events at random. There are a few categories, we call them fateful events, uh, where lightning strikes your house, or you know, a truck jumps over the divide. But were you driving too fast? Were you talking on your cell phone? Had you drank too much the night before? Many of the adversities we have, in fact, are behavior and genotype contributors. I'm going to give you three examples. Major depression and stressful life events, peer group deviance, back to my favorite, and my favorite because of its extraordinary didactic power is nicotine and cancer. So I apologize for the quality of this slide. I think it should be clear. This is a very simple-minded experiment. Since we've measured genetic risk for depression, and we've measured lots of environmental risks, I wanted to ask the question, if you have a genetic risk for major depression, are you more likely to experience stressful life events? And what it turns out, so I looked in the identical twins and the fraternal twins, where the other twin has major depression. Um, and what you see is that, is that on average, this is the ratio that would be predicted by a genetic model, that indeed, the genetic risk for major depression appears to increase your risk of assault, of marrow problems, of divorce and breakup, of job loss, of serious illness, of major financial problems, of troubles with your network. Now, this is not surprising because I told you previously about how well neuroticism is a predictor of major depression. There's quite a large literature that one of the strong predictors of marital satisfaction is the level of neuroticism. Neuroticism also causes more interpersonal difficulties. You are a more irritable, difficult, moody kind of person to get along with. It's not terribly surprising that on average you have somewhat greater amounts of adversity. We then control for current major depression to make sure that the results didn't go genes to depression, depression causing the events, and the patterns of very So in a simple-minded way, I fit much more sophisticated statistical models. But suffice it to say that it has clearly been shown that the genetic risk for major depression, and I'll show you another example at the end, partly mediates its actions by sweeping out of the environment and causing you to experience more adverse life events. Okay, now, this is a, a project that I entitled a little bit poetically, not typical for me, The Creation of Our Social World Through Development. And this is a uh, using peer deviance measures on another twin sample. If you measure peer deviance over time, what you find is that it increases a lot as kids age. You know, kids and friends do more nasty things when they get older, but the variance explodes. So the individual differences are very great. And I, that, that is really what we're going to rely on. Now, it's fun just to kind of get a little bit of raw data, so I'm going to kind of walk you through this. This is the age cohorts that we looked at, and this is measure of peer deviance here. So let's look at... Uh, individual F, pretty well behaved, slight changes, but this is a, these are all males, a person who was really ha hanging around with very socially mobile folks and they didn't tend to do very difficult things. Let's compare that to someone like A, who's on a trajectory to get into real trouble, or even more dramatically, G. G starts at young ages, and by the time here, he's really hanging out with hoodlums, are predominantly his main friend group. 
So I think it was particularly amusing to see what happened to E. E went up and up and up, and then the, the uh, team said that actually he had met a woman who caught him completely under control, didn't let him go out, didn't meet with any of his former friends, and lo and behold, he really towed the line and became a very compliant individual going with the churchgoers. So this gives you a little bit of richness about what's going on in this data. Now, this is for me a very fascinating slide, and I'll see if I can convey why. So again, this is the genetic shared environmental and individual specific environmental contributions to that increase in diversity. So let's think about, you know, as an eight-year-old, how much can I influence my environment? I can get on my tricycle or my little bicycle, and I can go four houses up the street, but I can't do much. What happens as we age? Well, at this point, I get a real bike. Then, at least in the US, I begin to get a learning permit, and I can drive around. Now I'm away from home, and maybe I'm in college, and now I really am setting up my whole life. So from having much of my world constrained by my family and my community, by the time you're in your mid-20s, you made your own nest. You can really create. So what happens is that peer deviance, which is one measure of that, becomes greatly diverse. And what's the driver? The driver's genes. That's the biggest difference. That effectively, your genes get to really express themselves on the patterns of social environment. Are you the kind of person who likes very quiet evenings and friends who love to read Proust and Kant, and you might talk about it over a cup of Chardonnay, or is a real good example of a fun Saturday night is you go down and you get drunk and you get into a fight and maybe throw some stones at cars, and that's really a kick-ass Saturday afternoon, Saturday <laughs> evening. That's a choice that you tend to make, and you select peers who tend to like things like you. So I'm being a little bit simple-minded, but I think this is not a completely unrealistic picture of part of what goes, goes on in development. If you talk about, remember this is uh, in the, uh, Hamlet, Laertes, to your own self be true, well, if you've got a high genetic vulnerability to pure deviance, that won't always have a good outcome. But that is what apparently is going on here. So third example, am I doing for time? Not too bad. All right, so I, many of you probably haven't seen Manhattan plots. I kind of live and die by these these days. Uh, this is a Manhattan plot of the, so what we do is we lay the entire human genome end to end from the top of chromosome one to the bottom of chromosome 22. This is a log P curve. So that's uh, one times 10 to the minus five, one times 10 to the minus 10, one times now. Nowhere in psychiatric genetics, this is a GWAS of, of cigarettes per day on a sample of 70,000. This is like the World Trade Tower times five. This is the, uh, this is, when it hit, this is, a, this is the most robust gene that's been found in all of psychiatric genetics, way more than, than, um, than schizophrenia or bipolar unless there's this variant. And what happens to sit in this area of chromosome 15? Nicotinic receptors. <laughs> so what we now know is that there's a, a couple of mutations in nicotinic receptors that make them less sensitive. We can put these into oocytes, and you have to have more nicotine getting at the same physiological reaction. So some of these are as big as you have to smoke one to two more cigarettes a day to get the same overall biological effect. So that's a giant signal. So remember that situation, chromosome 15. Here is a GWAS of lung cancer. Now, does that look at all possibly similar? And if so, what could be possibly going on to cause this? And of course, the answer is that is exactly the same set of loci that predetermined. Now, there has been a long debate in the literature about, well, could that locus maybe independently predispose to, to uh, lung cancer? We don't know. Well, this is a recent meta-analysis, and it pretty much nails the issue. So this is now, this is the alpha-3, this alpha-3 and alpha-5 measure. These are the key results here. That is, if you are a current smoker, you've got an odds rate, it's very, very large odds ratio 
um, for, uh, with uh, those variants. And if you're a non-smoker, it's not significantly different from zero. If you're a former smoker, it's a little weaker, which of course makes sense. So this is a mutation that if you smoke, you've got to smoke more to get the same effect. It's only going to occur in those that are smokers. Let me come back to this. So I want you to think this through for a minute. What we're claiming is that genes that predispose to smoking are really oncogenes, right? Now, but it's a funny kind of oncogene. So for example, this is an oncogene where if I go to the legislature and make them increase the price of cigarettes, I'm gonna reduce the influence of that oncogene. If I spend a lot of money telling girls in the US or the group that are really upswing in their use, that if we don't tell them that you're gonna die from, excuse me, from, uh, uh, from emphysema or, or uh, lung cancer, what we tell them is that boyfriends don't wanna kiss you because you smell bad. That's actually far more effective. It's been shown that I can reduce the penetrance of that. So if we're thinking about an outside the skin pathway, what's going on, of course, is that I, you know, I, I go out and I take these uh, symbolic things of money on paper and I go and I buy these little packets of, of uh, tobacco and I inhale them and I inhale them more deeply. And because I have this variant, I smoke them more and I get higher levels, which is inducing carcinogens going on. That's an oncogene, but it's an oncogene that loops out into the environment purchasing the tobacco, exposing yourself, and then loops back to cause the cancer. So that is a really perfect model of an outside-the-skin pathway. All right, now I want to move to developmental effects, and I'm going to go fairly quickly. So up until now, I've ignored time, and I just want to show you how important it is to include developmental factors when we're considering how genes might act. So this is a, a complete mess. This is an example of the individual consumption per year of uh, cigarettes uh, for about um, 2,400 individuals, and it looked like a complete bundle of yarn. This is a guy, this is Virginia, who was smoking five packs of cigarettes a day, which means you're pretty much smoking continuously from the time you wake up in the morning to the night, but actually lived to quit, which is kind of remarkable, he didn't die. Look at this mess. When I then ask the statisticians to look at what it's like at MZ and DZ twins, I get this beautiful curve. And rather than going through in detail and explaining it for time, I'm going to show you this is the kind of results you have which is over time, red represents genetic influences, green represents environmental influences that are shared. This would be things like communities, peer de um, parents, peer deviance, and this is the random environment. And what you see is this ineluctable, at the earliest stages, almost all the reason why smoking is similar in twins is the environment they're exposed to, genes are not playing a role. And then as you start putting the nicotine into the body, Ineluctably over time, genes become more and more important, and the shared environment tends to dominate itself out. So, the time you're in your early 30s, it's purely genetic. So, that in some ways, you think about your, your highest risk for becoming tobacco dependent is you've got two stages. You've got a deviant environment that gets you smoking when you're 14, 15, 16, and you've got a really good genotype for smoking that really finds the hedonic effects are quite strong. The dependence effects are strong, and the negative effects, i.e. really makes you very sick, are relatively weak. So if you've got both of those, you're very likely to end up with a high dependence. But you need both, the explanation would suggest. And I think I'm going to skip this altogether for time. Okay. Now I want to move to a further, more dynamic perspective. This will be sort of the most interactive of the models that I present. It's a little statistically complex, so I'll talk you through it. Then we'll go to the large models and then the final two stories. Okay, so let me try to describe to you what's going on here. I mean, the, the, the big background. There's a lot of prior literature about bad behavior in adolescence 
and bad behavior among their peers. So one possible theory is that you know poor Billy is this nice little boy, and he goes to a school, and he just happens to be related to hoodlums, and hoodlums turn that tiny little nice boy Billy into a little hoodlum. That's the model of social influence. Social selection is little Billy goes into school and he looks at oh, those hoodlums, you know, they, they wear their hair back and they get the girls and they go do exciting things and they, you know, they, they brag about breaking, uh, breaking into cars and I really like to hang out with them. So Billy goes and selects the hoodlums and hang out with them and they might make him a better hoodlum and teach him how to steal a car and those other things, but that's the social selection model. Most naive sociologists, they come in, think that most of the direction is going from the environment to the person. Er, uh, um, Eric Kandel's wife, Denise Kandel, did some critical longitudinal studies, which is one way to begin to get this, and what you see is cross-lags. That is that previous deviants, two years later, predict your peer deviants, but your peer deviants also predict your current deviants. So you've got causal hours that are going in both directions. We decided to take the first genetic epidemiologic look at that, and how much could we parse what your genes versus your shared environment is doing over time. So that's the background here. So the most important thing to look at is this is the genetic influences on conduct disorder, and these are the influences on pure deviance. And the causal effects, and I show this with a lot of statistical confidence, is that my genes, when I'm 8 to 11, make me a kind of kid that likes to do reasonably nasty things. They might be as unnasty as just lying and cheating, but they might be things like setting fires or putting wings off of flies uh, or counting puppies. Um, so they can be pretty nasty. And those, that phenotype causes me, with a pretty strong path of 0.66, to select out peers. So that the genes are all in a social selection model. My genotype influences my phenotype, which causes me to want to hang around with people who either, like me, want to go to church and sing in the choir, or like me, want to go out and, and, and rob and steal uh, for entertainment. And that's constant over development of time. Fascinating. What's going on in the shared environment is the exact opposite. So there is social factors that are influencing peer deviance. These would be community factors, school, family. And they very robustly, that's a very strong path, at point nine to back influence what's going on in conduct. So genes, phenotypes, conduct to peer deviance, environment, peer deviance back to conduct. So this is something about social expectations about how parents monitor playgrounds, all the stuff in which the society is saying that either peer deviance is permitted and not being monitored or really is very strongly sanctioned. But unlike the genetic effects, which are stable over time, you see this marked attenuation. So if this has any practical impact, what this would suggest is that by the time it's 15, it's too late. If you intervene environmentally at age 8 to 11 or 12 to 14, setting up social expectations about what kind of bullying or other behavior is possible, you'll really be able to influence what's going on by the time it's 15, it's too late, and the environmental attraction is really gone. So the main point here is showing that we, we know this kind of general epidemiologic thing. You dig down a layer and you begin to parse out what changes in the environment are doing, you reveal the substantial complex, that they're going in different directions. So, okay. So an integrated model for major depression, most people laugh when I present this, they think it's a transistor diagram. Um, so this is a rigorously developed, this is months and months of analytic work from one of our best analysts, it's all done in name plus, any of you do structural modeling, this was torture. Um, it is a developmental model going from the top of early development down to depression in the last year. I, only, I show this really partly because if you ask me now, I've researched depression for the last 20 years, this is way too simple. Um, this is getting at very broad brushstrokes, but the idea, and we will talk about this next time, about the kind of reductionist model, particularly, 
And we're just going to find all its genes, and it's going to have this one big arrow, who zoom, and that's going to explain things, not even close. But you can ask more interesting questions. So for example, this shows you, remember I was going to talk before about what, what outside the skin pathways are. So how do you get from having a high genetic risk to major depression? Well, partly you get a neurotic personality. You get something that's basically sort of emotionally unstable and stressful. That's one way genes act. So another way is that they tend to cause early onset anxiety disorder. And having early onset anxiety disorder is an important risk for depression. The genes also cause a little bit of tendency to have conduct disorder. They make you somewhat more exposed to lifetime trauma. Again, we talked about that's a classic study that I just showed you. They increase your risk of substance misuse. They increase the risk of difficulties. People with a high genetic risk are more likely to have marital problems and independent stressful events. So it begins to give you an insight that there's going to be a biology here. But look at how many of these past mediation levels of personality, of traumas, of substance misuse, that the pathway from genes to something like major depression is really complex. Now just to show you, the other ways to think about that is you can consider this as having three broad pathways, one of which is this internalizing pathway, internalizing mostly anxiety, depression, dysphoria. The second is externalizing, which in females is weaker. We did this study in males where this was more important. And here you have this social adversity. Major depression is only about 40% heritable. A lot of what predisposes is early adversities and later adversities. So those play an important role, and you begin to get some sense about how they interact with one another. And then we did the same thing for alcohol use disorders. And again, I'm just going to jump to the chase here. This is what genetic risks look like. So the most important pathways for genetic risk for alcohol or other externalized disorders, this would include conduct disorder, antisocial personality, is they tend to cause ADHD. And ADHD predisposes to alcohol problems. They tend to increase sensations. And anyone who knows a polydrug abuser, it's one of those, oh, a new drug. I want to try that one too. It's like the brakes aren't on, right? Um, and um, they also cause people, guess what, to select into high peer deviance groups. Again, we're replicating what we've seen before, and also cause uh, symptoms of conduct disorder. So it's a different set of intervening variables. So the way genes get to depression and genes get to alcohol dependence is different, but it's complex. This idea that we can just treat this like it's a, uh, you know, a medical disorder where it's purely going through physiological pathways, I think you get the sense here that that's, that's not how it works for psychopathology. So this is um, a pathway that describes the environmental risks. It turns out that if you have parents who don't go to church, this is Virginia, remember, who themselves use alcohol a lot, where they really don't care if their kid comes home drunk and if they've been physically abused, these are strongly related to social pathways. So you can see that there are biological pathways and social pathways. All right, so we're nearly at the end. So the last thing that I didn't treat, we've dealt with two two and a half major sources of complexity. So given that, disorder, that, that disorders arise from risk factors across multiple levels, I hope I have convinced you we cannot assume for many of the important classes that those risks act additively. That means that you cannot assume, given a magnitude of a risk at one level, that it will have the same effect. Often we get into these much more complex conditionalities where the impact of your genetic risk is going to have a lot to do with your environment. That's something I hammered on time and time again. 
Um, and we've talked about the fact that particularly for genetic effects, the idea that these act only within the skin rather than broadcasting their levels across both personal and social functioning is also not the case, that we have these complex actions that are rising directly across levels. So the last part I want to talk about is this concept of top-down causation. Any of you that have read in the emergence literature, it's huge. I know this much about it. There are likely people here who know much more. Um, and I'm just going to tell you two stories. I, I'll give you a little bit of the background. So I got invited to give a talk at the University of Virginia Law School about what we have learned in genetics that impacts on the ethical uh, responsibility for drug and alcohol abuse. You know, and I've read the standards for things, and you know, weeks were getting closer, and I was saying, I, you know, what else do I have to say? I, I, I get not infrequently called by lawyers who want me to come testify, which I always refuse to do. It's not at all clear to me what, if I say this person has a high genetic risk, does that make them more or less morally culpable? So I have done a large-scale study of alcoholism in Ireland. And as I was thinking about this sitting in my computer, saying, oh, this is going to be the most banal, repetitive talk. I'm going to look stupid, the things people fear when they come up for public speaking. The following story that I heard at interview came into my mind. This was not from an alcoholic. This was from a sibling. And this will be slightly embellished, but not a lot. And the clinicians in the audience, this will not surprise you. So we'll call this person um, you know, uh, uh, Mick O'Callaghan. And Mick was. Uh, he was a well member, and two of his male siblings, at least two, had alcohol dependence. And we knew his father had bad alcohol dependence. And the story he told was as follows. I can't do the Irish girl, I won't, I won't try. <laughs> um, it was really hard, doctor. My dad often, especially on the Friday nights, there would be the argument on the Friday morning. He had to come home with his paycheck. Mom needed to have money for the groceries to pay for the light bill. And sometimes he wouldn't, and he'd come home drunk, and I'd hear him yelling. And uh, I hear my dad hitting her and my mom screaming, and I was the oldest and I was little and I couldn't do anything, and we hide behind the door and we were crying. And then he sort of slowed down and he said, and there was this time, it still gives me chills. He was, I think, seven or eight, so way smaller. He said, I couldn't stand it. And of course, he tried to get in between the father and the mother. Right? That's what boys sometimes do to try to protect their mother who's being hit upon. And of course, his dad grabbed him threw him against the wall, slammed his mother. And you know, he wasn't knocked unconscious in what he described. You know, I, I was bleeding and I looked at them and my reaction was that I prayed to God, please never let me become like him, meaning his father. And he said at that point, I was never gonna let alcohol cross my lips. And now he was sort of 47 and he said, I can't tell you, doctor, what it's been like for me to watch my two brothers. They have ruined their lives. They're trying to ruin my life. God really sent me a message then, and I have listened to him. It's never happened. So I was thinking about this. And then the following insight, which is not profound, but although you know, this was a not very well-educated man, he was a blue-collar worker, and he didn't certainly understand any detailed way the principles about what DNA was. But in some profound way, what he was saying to his genotype was, and I pardon my French, I've watched you fuck up the life of my father and my family, and I'm not going to let you do that to me. Right? So that was a minor revelatory moment. You know, we, we think about genes, and we think about all these physics, you know, genes do beautiful things, and mRNA glatches on, we've got control regions, and they do enzymes, and we look at cascades. Nowhere have I heard the discussion, is it even conceivable that human decision-making 
of that kind of high order could stick in a pathway from genes on the one end to phenotype on the other. And I think I am convinced. I mean, this, by the way, this is a statistical phenomenon. The, the ratio of teetotalers is substantially increased in the offspring of alcoholics, as is the rate of alcoholism. But the, and you, you talk enough to the teetotalers, the stories are not so different from what I said. They sort of the stories I've watched what it's done to other people. And you can't do that with schizophrenia as well. But if you have a drug abusing problem, it is really true that if you don't take that drug, those genes don't get to do damage. So that was a minor revelation for me. I was doing a subsequent study. I think, do I show the slides here? Yes, I do. So this is um, uh, the this was the paper that emerged from that where I talk about this. So I was doing a study of identical female twins where one had developed depression and one hadn't. Fascinating study, I won't go into details, but there's one vignette that, that has, has moved me as profoundly as that prior study. So this was, the, the pattern was one of these identical sisters had three or four episodes of major depression, quite impairing, and the other sister, these now were women, were in the mid-50s, had been depression-free her whole life, but had no psychopathology. And we were uh, interviewing the well sister, who turns out was a nun, and she told the following story. My mom and dad used to fight a lot. My dad would leave, mom would get distraught, she got depressed, there was the time that we had to grab her after she took the bottle of pills, call the ambulance. Uh, it was a really bad marriage to watch. My mother, in fact, as we knew from other information, had repeated episodes of depression, all related to romantic difficulties, which is a quite common pattern with the father. And then she said, and I turned 15, 16, I began to go on dates. I didn't deal very well with men. It was really hard, the ups and downs and the rejection and the concern. My sister, the twin sister, was much more boy crazy than I was. And then she turned and she felt silent and she said, and instead, I fell in love with God. And what she then described is that at the age of 18, she went into a nunnery and of course has been away from men. She's now many years later, and she talked about the richness of the life she'd experienced, how full it was, and how hard it was for her to watch her twin sister really recapitulate the history of her mother with repeated romantic episodes, not picking men very well, that's a problem with women sometimes, um, and getting into repeated depressions and how painful that was. And she, and she said to me, I've occasionally reflected back whether in some ways I sort of knew that that was going to be the life ahead of me and that I wasn't going to cope well and that loving God has turned out to be much better for me. So it's not the same as the experience with alcohol. That's a little more straightforward, but I actually would argue that this was a person in, in her own way, she stepped into the pathway between her genetic vulnerability and her depression, realizing her vulnerability, knowing early onsets, early exposures with men left her very emotionally fragile, and she really also shifted and sort of shut, she more or less said to her risk genes for major depression, and this cause, of course, men is the key factor. Um, I'm not gonna let you get to me. Uh, I'm gonna love God instead. So if that does not demonstrate an important top-down influence, if that is not the kind of highest aspect of human decision-making, of insight, that goes down and acts on our DNA, I, I can't give you a better example, at least at this more literary level. So let me conclude that. So I've shown that psychiatric disorders have many well-validated main effects across the entire levels. I'll give you a little bit more review data in the next lecture about that. 
we've shown focusing largely on genetic risk factors, interactions occur across levels in which the impact of genetic factors depend on environmental exposures at the level of the person, at the level of the family, at the level of the community, and indeed at the level of the historical epoch. In that case, the epoch is probably reflecting social attitudes towards women smoking. So the impact of risk factors on one level can be highly conditional on those at other levels. Third, we also have direct cross-level effects, which I've illustrated showing genotype environment correlations. Genes work both in the dark channels of our biology, but also looping outside the skin in important ways influencing our environment. Remember the smoking and uh, nicotinic receptor story. And finally, we are at basis minded emerging creatures. I've only illustrated them with two simple stories, but as the clearest effects that I have, that any realistic models of causation of psychiatric disorders has to take these profound top-down kind of causal emergent effects into serious consideration. So this gives us a pretty complex picture of the etiology of psychiatric and drug abuse disorders. And so my question to pose for myself for the lecture tomorrow is can we develop a sensible, conceptual, and philosophical approach to the tasks of psychiatric science that is respectful of the complexity and avoids the deep attractions of hard reduction. You know, it's just all genes, it's just all brain structure. The unhelpful, at least from my perspective, inclusiveness, at least the standard vanilla biopsychosocial model, and we can talk about this more in the Q&A, but at least the way it's been translated into much of American psychiatry is everything's important, we'll all gather around, hold hands, and sing kumbaya. Um, which is actually, it's, and that's not entirely what Engel meant, so it's a little bit unfair, but it's not a critically incisive approach, would be my point. And third, and I've also heard this, the Mysterian models of intractable complexity. We just sort of wave our hand and, you know, it's all too complex, you know, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just give up and walk home and do psychotherapy, for example, as an example. So that'll be our task for lecture two. So I have many collaborators to thank, uh, individuals in Norway, in Sweden, at Virginia Commonwealth University um, that are thanked here. These are the people who support me. I don't have any conflicts of interest, I, I, so I don't have to report that as well. And thank you for your attention.
trying to use pharmacologic response as a subtype for genetic investigation. So there's been quite a lot of studies. Those of you not familiar, there's a subgroup of people with bipolar illness who appear to be very responsive to lithium, almost as if it's a curative agent. And there have been efforts to see whether that's a differential subtype, which has not been very successful. Part of the difficulty is that genetics is a big sample method. And while we, you know, we, when we interviewed 20,000 people, we could ask them some global question about how they responded, but they don't remember the name of the medicine, the dose. We couldn't possibly begin to get medical records. And the only way that I know where you get really good scientifically valid measures of that is controlled trials. And there you're dealing with a couple of hundred people. You know, it, it, it would be an interesting question, but that largely would be for trialists to decide that they want to add in some real module to look at family history and see whether that's predictive. I think that's the only way that you get very reliable data, because I've only come from your treatment home, or maybe I guess you get a differential placebo response. But I'm surprised that I've not seen that. I wouldn't be confident that that means it doesn't exist, but I'm not aware <coughs> of a literature in that area. And we're having a front row effect here. <laughs> so yes, please ask me that. Ken, thank you so much for your presentation, for the enormous amount of work and your contributions to all of us. Um, I, I want to go to this notion of top-down influences, because as you were describing these beautiful vignettes and these decisions these people made, I couldn't help but wonder about these post hoc explanations for why we do what we do. And is it not possible that in the one case which we're dealing with was someone who was just very conscientious, unlike the siblings who didn't get that gene, if you will, um, or if you had an individual that perhaps uh, was very extroverted or very introverted and went to a nunnery instead of out with the girls, um, is there any way to control for those sorts of variables? And maybe we are looking at variation of different sorts, but all at the same level, if you will. The rigorous answer, of course, is no. <laughs> we're, we're telling stories. The stories individually to me were quite plausible, um, but I, I can't possibly validate. We are creatures that are extraordinarily good at explaining our own behavior, whether it's correct or not. I use those because I think they're so easily psychologically transparent because there are many other examples of higher dams of influences that are less you know, uh, poetic as it might be in that regard. So I don't think those stand alone in suggesting that human decisions influence a range of other kinds of behaviors. But those are not the ones that I chose to spoke to. So I would agree with your criticism. Yep. Yep. Thanks. This is, first, to, to statistically resolve these questions, you need fairly big samples. So this was about 2,000 women who have been personally interviewed, actually over several waves, over about time of eight, eight or 10 years. Um, we didn't have physiological measures. We didn't measure cortisol. We didn't bring them in and look at structural or functional imaging. We did not look at 
potential intermediates, their immune function. Uh, so there are many dozens of other areas. So this was one example with the kinds of behaviors that could be assessable in that sort of large sample. I make no claims that there's anything like as complete. Um, now, when you're talking about, I assume you meant adding individual as in allelic variants. Uh, uh, and in that case, the sample size to have power would need to be much, much greater. So again, those of you that are aware, really the thing that we've learned, we've known now for 30 years with increasing confidence that there is a strong aggregate risk for psychiatric disorders. By aggregate, I mean if you look at identical versus fraternal twins and adoptees. But there, you don't know where it is on the genome. It's just a, you know, a big lump of the statistical characteristics. So what we've done since the mid-1980s is try to use a range of increasing sophisticated molecular genetic techniques to localize individual variants. And most of what we've done for the first 25 of those years is say, oh, it's not that large. Oop, can't find anything, can't be that large. So we've used bigger and bigger samples and found nothing and nothing and kept ruling out parts of the space. Now, I mean, the biggest success in the last year was this paper in Nature with 108 significant loci on the head group authors were out of Cardiff. Um, but the average effect size of those variants were to increase the risk of schizophrenia by about 10%. Okay? Now, we know that identical twins, the risk is increased by about 100-fold. So that's 10,000%. Uh, so how many of those, well, there's hundreds of those individual variants. I think that if you're going to look at the variant level, you, you, you will have to have much, much larger samples to be able to dig out those effects. Maybe something intermediate, and we'll talk about this a little more tomorrow, might be networks or other collections of genes. But right now, getting down to individual genetic mechanisms will be very hard because of the quite modest effect they each have. and patients where they had a kid relatively impulsive and 
I think actually at a metaphorical level, good parenting is trying to suppress the genetic potential of ADHD. You're trying to teach the kid alternatives to being so impulsive, how to think through, how not to do things first. So that's one part of it. The other part is you've got a kid you know, who may be pretty good at the piano, and what is the helicopter mother doing? She's trying to increase the effect of those genes. And that one model of what parenting does, and I realize this is metaphorical, but I don't think it's far off, is your kid gets a mixture of things, and half the job of parenting is you want to try to mute the genes that are going to be more di difficult and disruptive, and you try to augment those that are going to be more helpful. And that part of parenting is really somewhat of that same issue, but now you're not influencing yourself, you're trying to influence others. And the last point, the, the furthest out, is one could make the case that one aspect of wisdom about ourselves is knowing our potentials and our propensities and how to live well with them. You know, I'm pretty introverted. I am not going to be the kind of person that's going to be able to walk into a room with 80 people and set up conversations and usually shake hands. And that's not going to happen. But how do I live with that well? And how do I modify? So I think in a broad, it starts small. And I think it's the one important point of this clear top-down causation. But do I think humans with our higher cognitive capacities, both in parenting and in just living and in psychotherapy, do potentially modify the aesthetics? Yes. But that's much softer, is it not? All right, the back. First of all, can I express my personal reaction when I was doing my uh, master thesis? I was reading a lot of your papers, uh, one of the papers about parental uh, divorce and depression and of life for the offspring. Anyway, I want to ask you what you said about genes expressing themselves through uh, the choices that uh, people make later on in life and the social choice. I just want to a comment of yours about the choice of partner, and especially when now that there are lots of sites about um, people finding partners online where they think put a lot of uh, trades somehow, so maybe the sites. Well, we, the research has been a bit more enlightened by, by these kind of choices. And suppose it's a free choice, the choice of partner, at least in our societies, and whether we are a bit wiser in that field of research about the genes and then choice of partner, what it tells about genes expressing themselves. So in my end of the business, this is called understanding the origins of assorted meat. So human beings do not assort randomly. And we know that the traits they assort for most strongly actually are uh, education, social attitudes, and religion. So in the US, you don't really find very right-wing Republicans and liberal Democrats marrying very often. Um, and people don't tend to marry across wide educational lines. So college professors don't tend to marry plumbers, or vice versa. Um, interestingly, and this has been much discussed, if you look at per key personality traits, the correlations are close to zero. So the idea that you seek people out, these are big population samples, and marry someone who's temperamentally like you feels not to be the case. And it's not that they're the reverse, you know, the obsessional man and the sort of emotional woman, and they balance each other. It's mostly uncorrelated. Um, we have studied in some detail the current assortment for psychiatric disorders, and it's fairly modest, sort of 0.2-ish, for um, areas like depression, alcoholism, a little bit higher. There are now situations where assortment is going up, for example, in psychotic illness, because halfway houses are people, places now where individuals with schizophrenia used to be more housed in institutions where although sexual behavior occurred, it was not, they tried to stop it most typically. Um, and now where there's more outpatient care, so there's actually a greater number of these sort of dual matings, but these are people who are met in those situations. There's been a lot of speculation about the web and whether that will be increasing or changing the patterns, because the pool that you have to choose from 
is so much greater, whether we will then see that these correlations change. Uh, I think that's a very interesting research question. I, I've done some web-based uh, analyses. I've not yet seen someone who's trying to use that. Maybe we're studying from the dating systems, whether the kinds of relationships, when you've got this huge pool of people to choose from, do the kinds of spouses you actually find end up being different? I think it's, it's a wonderful question. And, and uh, I'll say Well, maybe I'll ask you. Yeah, He's the backup here. So. Yeah, that's right. He <laughs> thanks, Jim. Um, brilliantly eloquent work, uh, and thanks very much for presenting it. Uh, given, presumably, having modeled the data sets that you've got, 2,000 individuals in my understanding, with, with a certain level of feet measurement, you, you didn't tell us about the uncertainties inherent in that kind of modeling. Um, and the need for kind of further application. But at this <coughs> point, are there any implications for public mental health in the findings that you've come out with in terms of windows of opportunity for intervention at a general level? Because that's actually what the results of your models apply to, that they given that we can't tailor to this point because of the lack of a legal uh, understanding. I get asked that question a fair amount. My first reaction is that I am an unembarrassed basic researcher, and that my views have been that the history of medicine so strongly confirms the perspective that once we learn more about basic ideology, we are in a position to make interventions, and that my skills and proclivities led me to ask these ideology questions. So I think very little that I have done would change what any clinician would do the next day. That's just simply the nature of it. And I could bandy about and sort of try to pull examples, but mostly they, they would be stretching things. Um, I would say that I've, first, I, I do find diagrams like that showing up in introductory psychology textbooks, because people say that's, or residency directors say this is the first thing I hand out when I talk about depression, because it's such a complete and logical base. I, I'd like to think Again, we, we are self-congratulatory creatures, so we have to remember that as a basis, um, that sometimes the framework has been helpful to clinicians to think about these kinds of issues, the multifactorial nature, that in part what genes are doing are making people more vulnerable to the adversities they found to be conceptually useful in organizing. That my own concern has been that the field of psychiatry is so complicated that people often will shut down. That's why we silo. Now, the classic psychopharmacologists, they, they just don't want to hear this stuff. You know, side effects, medicine dose, you know, maybe asking something about you know, erectile functioning, but that's the detail of their comments, and then they give the next prescription. And that although this is complex, it's not impossible. It really can begin to provide a structure that I think is some boundary between, it's not realistically complex, but it's still capturing some important areas. And that it's, these are not untractable. They're just complicated and they can give some sort of order. So that would be the most. I mean, I did show that one slide about potential interventions at different ages, but I wouldn't base a you know, prevention trial on that. It's just too skinny a basis. So that's my action. Very much the back. Let's see, what time is it? <laughs> 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 the concept of mental disorder 
and it's still useful in the lives of what just told us. Let me start with the first of those. Each one of those are one hour. <laughs> um, so I, I, as it was noted, I've served, I was on the task force in DSM-3 or DSM-4, and then played this quite unusual role in DSM-5 being called by the then president of the um, American Psychiatric Association and asked to form a committee that would effectively exist between the entire DSM-5 venture and the governing board of the APA to vet the proposals. Um, so I had this quite extraordinary experience of forming this committee of about nine months reviewing about 160 of these protocols for scientific content. Um, so let me give you just a few broad themes. I have throughout my career been very empirically oriented in my work. And that what excited me, I, I had an earlier career in biological psychiatry. I did psychopharmacology for the first six years and sort of had a a minor revelation at the age of 33 that I didn't believe the dopamine hypothesis of schizophrenia and that genetics was going to be way more interesting. Um, but what has attracted to me to this area is that you can, using structural modeling, ask clinically quite relevant questions in rigorous ways that can actually be disproved. And that has been an important part of my identity. So as I became involved in DSM, I became increasingly disappointed about the way in which data was used. And if I was being honest, DSM, although everyone trumpets how scientific it is, it is really a scientifically informed expert consensus model. You get a bunch of people around a room, mostly men, not always nowadays, mostly psychiatrists, a few psychologists. And really, the alpha male or female more or less dictates this is the change because I really know what the true nature of depression, schizophrenia, drug abuse is. And here's a few papers that support it. And I think that's really bad for the field. And it, 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 pro, it supports the tendency to change. The amount of emotional connection to being able to put your stamp in DSM and to say to generations, the change in that I made it is a force of great psychological impact. What the SRC tried to do was I wanted us to pretend like we're the FDA. And when the FDA is looking at a drug, they don't begin with, well, my clinical impression is that I taught these last six patients and they all got better. This is a great drug. Let's approve it. They talk about the data. Now, talking about data raises all kinds of issues. I mean, many, many double-blind trials. You know, we've got clinical data and we've got epidemiology. Data. And we've got it worse than the FDA because we want data that might predict treatment response, that predicts MRI findings, that relate to genetics, and those don't need to be the same. So there's plenty to talk about, but it should be a data-driven kind of model where the discussions begin with detailed objective data summaries, and the focus is on that rather than the former. And if, if it started here and ended here, I moved it maybe about this much. Um, that there was some general further acceptance that that is a better approach. And I'm very pleased to say DSM 5.1 is starting up in about a month. And it's going to be a rolling model. So we're not going to do these all the effects at once. And I was on the committee that was asked to give the recommendations about setting up the rules for that. And about 60% of that document came from the rules we used on the SRC. And they appointed me co-chair. Um, I was. Uh, so I think that that kind of model, where it's run more like a grant review panel, where people, when they propose changes, have to give us detailed sets of data. And if they can't show us that for some important validators, their version is better than the last one, the answer is 
try again, but you've got to get more data. So I think that's been by far the most important change. It's not my work specifically. It would be really more trying to make the, the applying to the nosologic process a rigorous empirical kind of model. Now, what was your second question? It was even harder. Uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> And do you think, in the light of what you said, the concept of mental disorder is coming soon? We, we cannot live without it. Uh, the world is full of dichotomies. You know, you treat a person or you don't. Uh, you have to study them or not. So, do I believe? So, uh, I would reframe it this way: Are psychiatric disorders a natural kind, or individual disorders? And I'll talk about that some uh, tomorrow. I began life, as many scientists do, as a naive realist. Tried to sort of, well, of course, schizophrenia is a real thing. I don't believe that. Um, I think it has some characteristics of natural kinds. We have a very hard time finding clean boundaries, but so do biologists who work with species, even though the value of that as some sort of natural kind is fairly valuable. Is there a kindness-like? Yes. Is it more true for some disorders than others? Absolutely. Does developing some mixture of a weaker natural kind or taking a more instrumental approach Appropriate, yeah, probably, um, but we should not abandon the kinds. That's that's at least a somewhat subtler discussion that I could amplify on. So, uh, Phil Kelp. Okay. <coughs> um, I'm just going to ask, I think, a rather related question, which is that um, people said that the concept of major depression has its problems and there's a lot of diversity within it. I just wonder what the implications might be of that for your work, or whether your, your work threw up any lights on uh, other kinds of subtyping that might be useful. Okay. Right, so that again is a great question um, for which I have a slight allergy, and let me describe the source of that. Um, there must have been half a dozen times, it, it does so happen that, that investigators in other fields, internal medicine, human genetics, when they reach 55 or 60, and um, or toward the end of their career, they somehow turn to psychiatric problems. And I've had several people who basically have said, I'm, I'm being slightly simple, um, uh, give us all your DNA that you've collected. You know, you guys, you know, this diagnosis stuff, and, and give it to me, and I'll come back, and I'll solve all these problems for you. In essence, you're too stupid as a psychiatrist to really think about these things. And, and of course, assuming that we just dumbly apply these diagnoses without thinking about them for a long period of time. So I, I take a bit of offense at that. Um, we have looked, let me start again, the, the conceptual model that I have used and taught from is that the evolution of medicine generally begins from very broad syndromes like dropsy or fever to bust them apart into more specific ideological perspectives. But sometimes, like essential hypertension or uh, some of the complex forms of autoimmune disorders like fibromyalgia and others, it kind of hits a dead end, in which you have a broad syndrome, in which you know that there are a wide range of ideologies, but a single you know, ideologic form doesn't arise. So the single ideologic form works really well in mental genetics and for most infectious diseases. But there is this massive disorder where it's not because we're stupid, and there are really individual subtypes that we haven't discovered, it really is something deeply syndromal about the nature itself. Now, I think that's reality. 
I don't think we know yet enough where psychiatric disorders sit. The last time, well, the big successes, of course, was tertiary syphilis. That was, that was really a big, you know, 40% of the hospital beds in Western Europe had tertiary syphilis. That was a new kind of subtype, new etiology, treated with penicillin, you were done. Compared to that, pulling bipolar illness out of major affected was probably pretty good. That was really pretty useful uh, subtype. Pulling panic out of anxiety neurosis, not quite as good, but probably pretty good. That's about it. I have spent, you know, we, I, in, in the big China project we're doing, we've looked at melancholia and atypical and postpartum and Becky in helpless, hopeless forces. We threw a lot at that. I would say, actually, currently, that we're getting bigger genetic signals from melancholia than not. Uh, we've worked very hard at subtyping of schizophrenia, trying to see whether signals emerge. My wishes, again, the fantasy is, imagine that I'm you know, a jeweler. I've got this beautiful diamond, and I look at it, and I just tap it, and it falls into these two clean, independent parts. That's the fantasy. Right? We did that for diabetes. And in the middle of the 19th century, you peed a lot, and you tasted the urine, still in those days, and it was sweet. You had diabetes. Now we know, and there's some subtleties, but adult onset and juvenile, they're completely different disorders that share some. We haven't come close to that in psychiatry. So I think that's a big remaining mystery. I am more on the end of depression being more like essential hypertension than something. The other example might be mental retardation. So then mental retardation in the 1860s. Right now we know we've got Down syndrome and you've got some brain, you know, some birth complications, and you've got people who are just plain stupid, part of the expression on a normal curve, but you've got single, you've got all these short deletions in the genome, you've got single amino acid apophathies, so that busts apart into lots of single forms. We've done one key experiment, which is that psychiatric disorders should have mentalizing forms, like Alzheimer's does, or Parkinson's does, that's not true. We have searched almost over the whole world. I went off to Ireland in the 1980s. I was going to find Mendelian pedigrees that don't exist. So that's one good example of trying to find this idea of condensed heterogeneity that hasn't worked. I don't think we know enough, but my best guess is that a lot of it's going to be more like essential That's a pretty long-winded response, but that's a great question. Thanks, sir. Okay. Uh, Pierre, would you like to ask a question? No, but I'll make a comment, which is that um, you've convinced me of what I uh, always thought, but doubted until today, which is that the um, story about what works, for what kind of person, in what kind of way, with what kind of side effects, etc., is really uh, a, a prescription for uh, evaluation. One has to have that degree of um, complexity and yet that type of uh, patience to do the, uh, the dissection that you've done. So, no questions, maybe thanks. Uh, well, maybe I could ask my question. I've <laughs> <laughs> been very patient. Yeah, so, I, I mean, we've got this Japanese fan that was given to me by the European Foundation. I've just put it up on the, on, the, uh, on the piano, and every time I look at that, I'm going to think of the gene environment interaction. Because what I've taken away, oh, the it's shape. a fan. I see. Um, so, I, I, the last bit was, was sort of very upbeat and sort of breastfeeding and, and positive about the possibilities of intervening. But the rest of it I found actually very grim uh, because 
not only you stare at this fan, but from, if I understand you, our genetic disposition will cause us to choose those environments will, which will make the problem a whole lot worse. So zooming out, um, in, in ethics we talk, people like to talk about good and bad, and in this case good and bad genes, uh, or constellations of genes. And uh, one of the sort of reactions to that is, well, you know, you, you can never say straightforwardly that a gene is bad. You have to talk about it relative to an environment. And there's this concept of pleiotropy, that genes can have different effects in different environments. So I'm wondering if there's anything more positive to be said for, for those people who do start off with the genetic short straws in, say, depression. Uh, are there any positive aspects to, to, to that sort of story? Or, you know, what, or are, are they much more likely to experience depression, barring these spectacular cases of you know, ch life choices and so on, which you know, I'm sure don't really dominate reality? So can you, is there a more positive story, or do you think that actually there are just some bad genetic hands when it comes to genetics and psychiatry? Okay. Well, again, a very good and rather deep question. First, to, just to get some facts straight, the, the heritability of major depression is only about 40%. So that's about as heritable as your plasma cholesterol, which we know we can modify from medications and we can modify through diet. Schizophrenia, on the other hand, is about 80%, which is almost as heritable as height. And you, you need to know, if you don't, that aside from breaking your bones or being malnourished, within about an inch of your height, it's all your genes of mother and father. So anyone who studies identical twins, I don't know, here, they're usually half an inch uh, difference in height is about all. It's typical. It's really quite unusual thing to be different in that regard. So the depression, the, these genes are not fateful, and certainly not single genes, which we know all these tiny little contributions. So the idea that one is fated to develop depression or schizophrenia from one's genotype is simply not the case. All right. So. Now, um, there is, for depression, quite a substantial literature, more in the areas of psychology than psychiatry, about whether depression is good for you. There is a whole literature in evolutionary psychology about why might these things have evolved in the population. Is there some concept of balancing selection, if you're not aware? It's roughly the genotype toward depression must have been doing something moderately good in addition to the others for it to stay so high in the population. I would, by the way, give you a bit of data, again, from our China Converge project. We know something about the genetic architecture of traits by knowing the frequency of the alleles that cause it. And for disorders that are really disabling, autism being one example, we know that there are a bunch of quite rare genes that will cause high penetrance of those disorders. And they stay rare because once mutated, that kid never reproduces. So they stay low in the population. Depression is almost all common variants. So these are things that are really a result of human evolution. These individuality don't do things that are very bad. I have read the articles about depressive cognitions. It is, I think, relatively well demonstrated, and this is a comment at least as much about mental health as, as, as depression, that if you, if you do, a, the, the, the paradigmatic study would be, in your introductory psychology class, for your class credit, you go in and spend three hours of complex group interactions with 14 other undergraduates, and then at the end of that, you all rate how you like each of them, and then you rate how much you think you are liked, and you rate your depression. And what you find is that Anybody who isn't depressed thinks that people like them way more than they really do. 
the people who are depressed are relatively accurate about how people like them. So there is, the concept is that, you know, and when I think about the website, and now you know, you know, the second Ebola case occurred, and my wife said, maybe this can be an Ebola case at our hospital. The world is so full of misery that if one actually seriously took that, how could you avoid being depressed? But part of mental health is actually having rose-colored glasses on. So I think that's probably true. Is that a benefit? May you see things more realistically? That might be right. The other work that better decisions get made, there are psychologists who claim this. My clinical experience is strongly against that. When people in the middle of clinical depression, you should resist in all possible ways to prevent them from getting divorced or making business decisions because they are not in a position of evaluating the consequences of their actions very well. So I don't think that depression has many very similar linings. Now, there is a well-known family study of Nancy Andreessen who has shown that she went to the writer's workshop, which is one of the places where creative writers go commonly, and she did a family history study. And what she found is that compared to a reasonably matched control group, those individuals had higher rates of depression and bipolarness in their relatives, not psychosis. And that whole thing about being crazy is really being a shaman and you're a spiritual person in touch, it's just a load of rubbish. Uh, but for mood disorders and creativity, there actually is some empirical evidence that there may be some support for that. So that's not a great answer to the question, but at least a partial addressing. Okay, well, we, we can take one quick question, one quick response, and then we need to finish up. You've written recently about resilience, and that has a an environmental component that's similar to the genetic component. And I wonder if you could think in terms of the equivalent map, but instead of a map of, towards increasing vulnerability, yeah. what would the map look like of reducing vulnerability yeah. to increase resilience? It's pretty much, would just look like a mirror image. I mean, it, that is literally partly a labeling issue. So when I label neuroticism, if I called it low neuroticism, it would not be terribly different from, resi from resilience. Very low neurotic people are those who sort of stress rolls off their back, they've got this even sort of temperament. It, it's not completely true, but in many instances, that's right. So it wouldn't look very different. That is that resilient people, the curve would just look. Resilient people, in fact, have quite flat. You, know, you throw a lot of adversity at them, they don't react much. Very low resilient people are just like those that, that have the high level. So it's, it's really pretty much the same idea. Not perfectly, because resilience doesn't correlate one 100% with the other measures I got, but the broad pattern would be relatively similar. So there's a little bit more of a feel-good sense of doing resilience, as if it's really different. I, I think that's a little bit self-illusionary, although I know people are in this positive psychology and kind of sort of sunny, you know? It's like a little, I think there's a little layer of BS on that. <laughs> <laughs> So the final point is, come for part two. You know, so there will be a lecture tomorrow where I will be rather more philosophical, a little riskier for me, since I'm by no means a trained philosopher, but I will try to put these in a broader context. And I, I hope that these two will be act synergistically interactive with providing increased insight. So I hope to see you tomorrow. Well, thank you very much.